We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Waves for Thursday, December 13th, the Gentle Sexy Gift Edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, host of NPR's Invisibilia, and in the New York studios today, we have June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. Back from Australia. Back and talking to you after two hours sleep. I'm gonna, it's going to be such a great show. <laughs> Actually, I know, but like June after two hours, that's great. June after two hours sleep is like the best kind of June, like <laughs> wacky, who knows what we'll get. Well, um, uh, and the person you hear laughing, laughing in the background is Molly Fisher from The Cut on Tuesdays, which is such a fabulous new feminist show. Hi, Molly. Hello, and thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Yes, I love your show. We shouldn't call it a feminist show, or should we call it a feminist show? It's you like know, the cut is so good. So mm, now, what? Like, how do you how, how do you think about your show? I certainly think of it as a feminist show, but I do think that like one thing we talk about and have talked about a lot at the cut is sort of wanting to do it without saying we're doing it, whether it means being inclusive, whether it means being feminist, whether it means being diverse, whatever, like rather than kind of harping on the fact of the label as a point of pride, just to simply enact what we think it means and convey that to our readers, our audience, whatever, without, you know, attaching a lot of baggage to it. You know, that's sort of the ethos, I would say. But it's that a, is a so good show. to hear because when we were starting Double X, right, it was the same thing where I could never quite put my words on it. Like nothing uh-huh. ever felt quite right as a description, but I totally understood what I wanted and I totally could feel my way through it. But I could never, all the words just kind of lead you down a weird path, you know? Yeah, well, and I don't um, think it's like, a... Of course it's a yeah. feminist show, but it's not about feminism. Like feminism is a political movement. Sometimes it's about feminism, but that's not exactly all that it is, you know? Yeah, um, well, we got a really, really kind write-up from Amanda Hess, Slate alum, in the Times recently, I and saw. she said, I think that it was um, uh, influenced by feminism or informed by feminism, but not wedded to ideology or dogma. And I felt like that was a nice summary of what we try to do and how we try to think about what we do. Okay, good. We'll land it at that. Um, and Noreen will be back next week, but we are so glad to have you here today, Molly, because. Um, Sexy, topic. <laughs> sexy topic. That was weird. Anyway, okay, so our topics for today. First, the Victoria Secret brand is in trouble. Is that because its version of fantasy has no place in the world anymore? Second, Tumblr, which embodies a whole other take on female sexuality, also in trouble for try- for banning porn on the site in all the wrong ways. Or banning nudity. It's not porn, exactly, but we'll get into it. Um, and finally, we're going to talk about multi-level marketing, the updated social media era version of the Tupperware lady, does it prey on women and why does it persist? And June, what are we doing for our Slate Plus topic today? So in our Slate Plus segment, we will be asking, is Spotify sexist? Uh, The 2018 most listened to music, most streamed music lists are out and there is nary a woman to be seen. Is that sexism? If you want to hear that segment and to support Slate's journalism, you can enroll for a two-week free trial at slate.com slash thewavesplus. Oh, my God. June, like the way you say Spotify, that's amazing. (laughs) Spotify. Oh, my God. Spotify. Uh, you would incredible. think I, would, I should be sing, singing, speaking with an Australian <laughs> accent. Spotify. <laughs> Spotify. Thank you. Thank you. So let's dive in with Victoria's Secret. Um, God, I just want to talk about the TV show, but I have to set up the topic. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Victoria's Secret brand seems to be in trouble. The annual televised fashion show aired earlier this month, and so many fewer people watched than they did when it started around 10 years ago. Revenue and shares are down, and the speculation is this has something to do with the brand clinging to a very limited and outdated and possibly offensive idea <laughs> of what is a fantasy. Uh, before we talk about the show, which was amazing, I have to admit I'd never watched it before, um, I I just want to qualify this by saying 
one of the things I discovered in reading about this topic, they have a tremendous share of the lingerie market. Yes. Market, like way bigger than I thought. It was like, oh, it went down from, you know, 30. They still have a quarter of it. It's yeah. huge in yeah. America. Yeah, it went from I a third no to a idea. quarter in two years. It's still massive. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, Molly, you want to set us up by just describing what the show, like, what's the basic, what happens on the Victoria's Secret TV sure, show? Like, sure, what sure, is sure. the fantasy that they're selling? Well, okay, so I would describe, if I had to, the fantasy of the Victoria's Secret show as sort of like a live-action Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, but with a Super Bowl halftime show <laughs> attached. Like, what you see is basically <laughs> models. No, it's so true. It's like the wing. You're like, what? It's yeah. bizarre. Well, it's like models in sexy Halloween costumes. Like, you have sort of a, like a bra-centric <laughs> themed ensembles. So it has, like, nothing to do with fashion shows, as you might typically imagine them. You know, it's not a place where you imagine Anna Wintour sitting in the front <laughs> row looking judgmental or something. Instead, it's sort of this celebrity media circus. You know, you have a bunch of male celebrities sitting in the front row looking enthusiastic. <laughs> um, in 2014, The Cut actually called it the Super Bowl of male thirst, thanks to guys <laughs> like Adam Levine and Justin Bieber. Um, I was going to say, is it only Adam Levine? I feel like it's just Adam Levine. <laughs> I associate there. Adam like, Levine there's 17 so strongly. Adam yeah. <laughs> just like a row. A row of Adam Levine clones. A row of Adam Levine. <laughs> yes. Of Adam's Levine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I was speaking of, though, like the Super Bowl. I mean, I was interested in reading up about the show to see that the Victoria's Secret show had in 1999 actually advertised during the Super Bowl with this spot that was like, the Broncos won't be there. The Falcons won't be there. You won't care. That was when they were just doing. Oh, that's so good. I know. That's so good. <laughs> a webcast. Um, that was before they were televising it. But clearly all along, um, the audience they've been imagining for this show and sort of catering to has been a lascivious male audience. They've been kind of courting that male thirst. Um, okay, but can we pause there first? Because obviously that's, you know, whenever they talk about why was this company founded, it was founded as a place where men could go shop mm -hmm. for lingerie. Now, I have no idea if that's true or if it is men shopping for lingerie, but that's that's the kind of that's the kind of line the founders put out. What man would watch that show? Like maybe a gay man, but like wh what man would watch that show? How? Well, like sit around with his butt? I could not get my imagination around how men would actually watch that show. It's in their truly house. baffling to me. Like it's it, it, it's baffling to imagine the social situation, as you say, like men sitting around in a group. But it's also just so anachronistic feeling like it's so strange to imagine anyone in at any point in the last 15 years deciding they want to see something sexy and so turning on network TV to watch, like, models in kind of campy costumes. Um, right. Yeah, but I do, um, speaking as someone who worked and has worked at a website that for a long time covered the Victoria's Secret fashion show really <laughs> assiduously, um, it also, I think, was a traffic boon for a while. Like if you covered the Victoria's Secret fashion show, you would get all kinds of people Googling Victoria's Secret angels and so clicking on your link, your story, whatever. And that is easier to me to imagine, like people furtively Googling perhaps and so wanting to see that rather than sitting around and actually watching it on TV. Although, again, why wouldn't you just watch internet porn if that was what you were in the market for? I don't know. Um, it's kind of like safe-ish porn, like a weird relationship I have with Victoria's Secret is when I uh, was covering evangelicals mm. many years ago. Um, that would be the big like, like, oh, my God, like, shh, whisper, whisper. He gets the Victoria's Secret catalog. <laughs> like They would order the Victoria's Secret catalog. And that would be like them oh mainstream acceptable. I mean, it was like a sin on that campus, but it would still be the way that people committed the sin. Yeah. Uh, who, would who would not watch porn would be to to order the catalog wow that's you know? yeah so there's some category it occupies of like very safe porn i mean my dave david my husband i we watched it and he was like oh fine just say this on the air but like he was just like where's the sexy yeah. like <laughs> i've been waiting here for an hour and it's like girl empowerment and like lots of costumes but like this is the least sexy thing like where is it at you know yeah it's um, but i kind of get that it yeah. Um, okay. So, so the lar so the larger question is, you know, the end of the male gaze, the end of marketing. Like the think pieces that came out of this had to do with American Apparel and just this larger question of, can you 
sell this fantasy anymore is just does it seem in this moment in time in historical time like creepy and outdated to sell a kind of you know just perfect body uh fantasy like to men like the male gaze just like so explicitly embracing that just seems icky now but it's like that's the only thing they've got i mean there's so many problems you know they're like stores people aren't going to actual stores anymore malls are dying people aren't watching tv anymore tv ratings are down there's not like what else have they got like this is the last thing of their like their shoddy uh you know setup the only thing that's left is like well we've got this tv show where (laughs) models put on wings and parade around i mean that's all they've got what you know like whether or not it's gonna you know turn anyone on which i agree seems unlikely like that they're 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 working with with their materials and and this is the last gasp really clinging to it too i mean the thing that's interesting about to my mind the interview in vogue that uh victoria's secret executive gave that sort of stirred up recent controversy around the show and inclusion and diversity can you just say what he said sure yeah i can just so people know yeah yeah so not long ago um about the time the show was taped there's like a month-long lag between when it's when it takes place and when it appears on tv um Ed Razik, who's the Victoria's Secret CMO, gave this interview to Vogue where he sort of blithely brushed aside concerns like body positivity and diversity. So he said, um, quote, so it's like, why don't you do 50, which is referring to bra sizing, like band size, a measure of 50. Why don't you do 60? Why don't you do 24? It's like, why doesn't your show do this? Why don't you have transsexuals on your show? Or I'm sorry, rather, shouldn't you have transsexuals in the show? No, no, I don't think we should. Well, why not? Because the show is a fantasy. It's a 42-minute entertainment special. So he's just kind of like, nope, we're Victoria's Secret. This is our brand. We exclude people. And that's what we do. You like it or you get off the bus. Which in an era of inclusion and diversity and body positivity as a marketing strategy so ubiquitous that people are kind of jaded about it is almost refreshing. Like the (laughs) fact that someone would be like, nope, (laughs) not who we are, not what we do. I mean – Obviously, though, what he said and this interview, which, you know, goes on to talk about how they tried to have a plus size fashion show one time, but no one was interested in it and just kind of dismissed that out of hand. Um, A lot of people were upset by this interview uh, and it provoked a lot of outcry. Halsey, who was one of the performers who had appeared at the show, there's always a sort of big celebrity pop performance component, um, put out a statement saying that she had uh, she had no tolerance, quote, for a lack of diversity, um, even though she had been part of the show to begin with. Can we pick that apart a little bit? I had a slightly interesting one of my reactions to what he said, which was ridiculous. And I don't know, like how he could say something like how he couldn't know how that would resonate. It's amazing. But was also like you're asking also what 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 it did also make me think of is, though, like is the audience that comes down on him is kind of asking for bullshit. Like there was an undercurrent of that show, which was a lot of bullshit. It was like self-empowerment. And this makes me feel so strong. Mm -hmm. It was literally like robots talking. Yeah. Kind of girl empowerment language. It was really, really AI. And so it was, but I was like, oh, is that what we're asking for? Like, that's some, is all of that just bullshit too, where we just want people to say the right words? Because I was like, why would a transgender person want to be in this well, fucked up yeah. show? Like, why? So, like, what we just want diversity. It's like, I didn't quite all, like, the puzzle didn't all quite fit for me because. I don't know. And then it made me think like, well, do what I want is like dove. Like, I want to take <laughs> God forbid. That are, like genuine empowerment and like genuine body positivity and just like commercialize the hell out of it. Like I, I just wasn't sure where I was going to land in, in what I actually wanted from all of this. And I know? think we have to consider the possibility that it wasn't a gaffe, but rather, you know, maybe that was a strategy that, you know, they're going for this. They've got their audience and this audience is in, you know, some 50s version of like a dude buying lingerie for his wife. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's a weird concept at this point, but maybe he's just leaning into it. Well, I think it also is like a uh, a window into how blinkered some people in certain corners of the fashion business can be, like how oblivious to how their words might be perceived or how they might be yeah, received by the public. Um I do think it's interesting to ask the question, though, like, why why would we expect differently from Victoria's Secret? Why would we even want that? I mean, I saw a not to I don't know 
if it's terribly annoying to like mention things I've seen on Twitter. But I saw <laughs> a smart thread on Twitter about this from the comedian Patty Harrison, who who is trans and who's very funny and who was like, look, it's Victoria's Secret. Of course, they're evil. Like, why? Like, she was like, I'm all in favor of trans girls getting money. Like, but I feel conflicted, like trying to root for them in this context. Like, why would you want to be a part of this? And why would you imagine that a company whose whole brand is like this very narrow, specific version of the male gaze would be a welcoming or empowering place for women of any kind? Right. And June, maybe you make a good point. Maybe they're inching towards the like, Brian Kemp, demo, you know, oh, the God. demographic of like, I right. drive my truck. I, you know, like maybe that's like, that's a that's a new niche. It's like the male gaze niche. I, mean, mm-hmm. well, I don't know what they would call it, but that's not, that's what we would call it. Right. Like, what would, you know, that's like a, that's like a slice. It's like the, you know, then the whole controversy is intentional. Right, That's right. The, like Machiavellian Hey, we're, you know, we're talking about this down. show. I mean, I can't, I'm not in any way suggesting like, yeah, you know, we got a low audience so that people would talk about it. But like, <laughs> there's there have been so many pieces. We're doing a segment about, you know, a failing business that's out of date. And, and why? Because partly because a guy made some gross comments and revealed himself to have some awful attitudes and that people weren't really interested in watching the show. You rarely get attention for for at least the latter. People not watching something usually means people don't talk about it. I mean, they might be. I think we should right. consider the possibility that they might be geniuses. <laughs> <laughs> we'll consider that briefly, oh, I guess. <laughs> All right, last question, and then we'll move on. Have like, would you stop? You know, the whole American Apparel. Like, do you do you ever stop shopping at some place because of its image like that? I think I do. Do you know what I mean? Like, do you think that politics does actually affect our actual shopping choices? For sure. You know, like I'm more likely to buy a third love bra because it's like a sisterhood vibe. Mm -hmm. Like, is that does it actually move us one way or another? I mean, it's tricky, right? Because there were good things about American Apparel. I mean, their their you know commitment to uh, making their products in L.A. and quite openly using undocumented labor. the f- and now that Dove Cheney's not involved and you can still buy American apparel, I, I must admit, I just bought some American apparel T-shirts that just arrived last week. Um, and because now he's not involved and his grossness is, is separate now, uh, he's not profiting from it. But I definitely, you know, shop my conscience. Uh, if Dove Cheney was still there and was still saying gross things, I really would not purchase from them. Well, I think that I while I do make choices about things I buy based on political associations of the kind we're talking about, I really feel like a bigger part of what's going on with Victoria's Secret and its current crisis has to do with aesthetics rather than politics. Like, I think it's really about their whole look feeling really dated and corny to a lot of consumers. I mean, I was talking about this with um, my boss uh, the other day getting ready for this, and she was like, you know, isn't it? Just the kind of same old thing of people rejecting the thing they thought was sexy in junior high, like no one who grew up with Victoria's Secret as sort of this dominant mall brand is going to continue to find it cool and aesthetically appealing and sexy when they're 20 somethings or 30 somethings or whatever. Um, I mean, it just seems like even the contrast between like the Victoria's Secret, like Barbie fuchsia palette and the kind of dusty rose millennial pink that's now the cliche of all female-oriented marketing is so telling because like it just feels like two totally different uh visual vibes and aesthetics and like default modes of marketing to women and the victoria's secret one seems very clearly to have passed itself by date yeah i agree with that i was because it had the word fashion show i was a little shocked <laughs> by the just <laughs> fashionlessness yeah. of the show, you know? Totally. Um, and it wasn't interesting even in like a drag way. It's just like kind of boring. So in other words, what I'm hearing, it wasn't fashion, Victoria wasn't involved, and there were no secrets. I know. Totally That's disappointing. True. That's true. Totally disappointing. Um, listeners, if you have ever made a switch in your shopping habits be- for political reasons, even if it's like aesthetic political reasons, we would like to hear about it. So, uh, Go on our Facebook page or send us an email at thewaves at slate.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. 
We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. All right, our next topic, Tumblr. I spent so much time on Tumblr this week. Mm-hmm. I really got into it. It's like I <laughs> forgot about Tumblr and then I decided <laughs> to go back in. Anyway, a social networking site that has had many incarnations since it was founded in 2007 recently announced that it was banning porn or explicit images of sex, genitals, and then the phrase that caused a lot of trouble, female presenting <laughs> nipples. It's I my just new really wanted to say that That's... out loud. I've only been reading it all week and I just haven't said it out of my mouth. It's amazing when you see a meme crystallize. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And is it like, I can't even tell when I just said it out loud, does it sound medical? Or when I say you're female presenting nipple, like I don't even know. Um, So so what do we lose if we lose Tumblr? Um, June, just for people who are not deep into Tumblr, because people don't talk about it that much. Like, it occupies a slightly different place in the culture at this very moment, although all of a sudden people really care <laughs> yeah, about it, so right. that's interesting. Yeah. But, June, just give us a little sense about, like, what what is what is Tumblr to, to the culture? Well, it's funny because I think that um, maybe I'm wrong about this, but for me, it feels like Tumblr is a world, an online world, that even more than others is is quite niche. So for example, my experience with Tumblr is in one area only, and that is like, it's really strong for fan fiction. And if you want to, you know, enjoy the fan made videos that, you know, put together the slash pairings of your dream, (laughs) that is the place to get them. Um, And if you just are in a little mode, which I mean, maybe, have I ever been in that kind of mode? maybe, <laughs> where you just want to see the gifts and you just want to see those scenes all cut together, there is no better place to find them than on Tumblr. Um, so I, to be quite honest with you, in my old uncool way, wasn't even aware that it was a place for uh, kind of celebratory conversations and communication about sex and sexuality I didn't realize that there were a lot of images. I didn't realize that people posted sexy selfies there. I I just didn't realize it. But now I do know Mm. this. Um, And apparently it is, you know, the last, essentially the last open part of the Internet uh, where that kind of sex positive uh, kind of you know, not pornographic, not male gazy for the most part, discussion of sex and bodies and sexuality uh, still exists. Uh, Slate's April Glazer had a good uh, description, I think. She said, I apologize. I swear I had this. Oh, yeah. She said that this ban, which takes effect on December 17th, next Monday, will eradicate, quote, one of the few mainstream safe, non-taboo places where people could communicate around sex and sexuality. Um, So even though I've really not participated in it, it really does feel like a loss to me. Well, and one of the things that I found so interesting in that um, April Glazer post from Slate about the Tumblr porn ban was how she described the way that part of the experience of porn or of sexual material on Tumblr was that it was integrated into the midst of everything else that, you know, it sort of normalized sexuality, not just by providing a wealth of sexual material, but by, you know, putting it in your feed alongside all the other things you were interested in. And that that in itself was a powerful people who might not have felt comfortable expressing or communicating stuff around their sexuality. Um but again, part of why th- I, that is the main thing I noticed when I went back into Tumblr, I was thinking like, OK, what is special about Tumblr? And I think part of what's special about it, because everyone talks about the nichification of Tumblr and like what you just said, June. But but the niceness for me is like the pace of mm-hmm. it. You know, it's not like you go on a porn site and it's like, ah! Porn ads, like it's horrifying. It's just like Jesus. I was just like for one second, I just hold back off. It's like no foreplay. It's just like someone smack. You know what I mean? And then like Tumblr, it's just like kind of eases you in slowly. It's like you can be doing one thing, and then you look at a sexy picture, and then it's like the give. It's just like a, a it's gentle like the gift. normal yeah. piece of sex. Yes, it's like. 
<laughs> so I don't know, like empowerment or no, it just like feels normal, you know. There really isn't a place like that. I mean, we all forgot about Tumblr a little bit, except for those of us who totally didn't forget about Tumblr, <laughs> who were like sex workers. I mean, there was a yeah. lot of talk about like the little niche it occupies for people in sex work and webcams, and mm-hmm. I don't know much about that because I don't know like the safety of Tumblr. It feels like. Like, like there were definitely anecdotal, you know, in the news kind of, well, it's a safe place and I lost half my business. So I totally believe those, but I don't know the overall picture. Like, is it a safe place and is it a good place to advertise that? I don't know. Well, one thing we um, should mention is that one of the people are speculating. I don't believe that the management of Tumblr has themselves made this connection explicitly, but it feels, you know, there, there's a... The action happened so close after uh, Apple at least temporarily removed uh, the Tumblr app from their app store when child pornography was found to be on the app. And obviously, child pornography is never okay. It's illegal. It's also, you know, grotesque. And if and that's clearly a problem. They clearly apparently have a problem with allowing or not squashing uh, child pornography efficiently or at all, you know, there should not be child pornography on any sites. The fact that there was at least temporarily shows that there was a problem there. Um, And but that then, you know, the response from Tumblr was then to ban every adult image and that. Yeah, doesn't it piss you off that like you have a problem with child pornography, which is like revolting and there should be a way to get child (laughs) pornography off your site without eliminating, you know, any kind of adult exploration of sexuality. And the fact that those two are linked together in the same story is just so offensive and irritating. Like, yeah, you got a child porn problem. Great. Get rid of your child porn problem. Like, what does that have to do with any other thing? Do you, Molly, do you believe the like larger, you know, Internet monopoly conspiracy kind of theory that's underneath this? Like, you know, we're going to eradicate Las Vegas. We're going to stomp out. This did feel like a Las Vegas moment to me. Remember when Las Vegas went family friendly some number of years ago? Like like, (laughs) Tumblr's been like very porny lately. Like they're very into the porn. It was it's something like a quarter of all their top sites are sort of porn. Ish sites, and so um, and so suddenly they're like, we're a clean, family friendly place. Like nipples? What? No, 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 not here. You know. So it's like a weird sort of identity shift. But well, this idea that what this is about is like eliminating any kind of like you know soft, porny uh, thing from from like the big internet. Well, clearly, as you see, like uh, all of these platforms that are sort of trying to figure out whether they're publishers, whether they're platforms that just provide a way for other people to communicate. You know, the question of how to regulate speech or if you're going to moderate things always becomes a sticking point. I mean, people talk about this all the time, have been talking about it all the time with Twitter, for example, and with Facebook and, you know, Tumblr, it's played out in this way where, you know, they've had a series, they've been acquired, they've become part of bigger corporate behemoths after being this little startup. And what maybe initially felt like this small, quirky, like people finding each other and having this kind of organic conversation space where they could carve out little personalized, hospitable niches, you know, has become part of a big business that has to answer to shareholders, that has to answer questions about how it maintains whatever level of um, corporate uh, propriety that, you know, people demand. Um and there, and as many people pointed out last year, I guess, uh, Foster and Sesta, mm-hmm. these anti-trafficking laws that do, you know, set really harsh penalties for sites that promote or harbor sex traffickers, which is very vaguely defined. And, you know, there's there's, you know, sex workers continually point out yeah. that this this kind of conflagration. Oh, that's not the right mm-hmm. word. This I'm making a gesture because I can't think of the word. Conflation. Conflation, yes. (laughs) That was the conflation gesture. Yeah, I'm making the conflation gesture. The conflation of sex trafficking and sex work is ridiculous and unfair often. Um, But there are penalties in Verizon, which is already not making millions, or which is to say losing millions on its uh, content uh, division oath, um, is, you know, there's not much motivation uh, for them to keep it. I mean, yeah, it's nice for the people who are in those communities, but it's not 
really their community. It's a community provided by Verizon, and there's not a profit motive for Verizon to do so. So I'm not sure we should be surprised. Again, it's like this market thing. It's capitalism, man. Yeah. Well, and then there's even just the practical question of like, are you going to like train an AI to be able to tell child porn from like someone's, you know, fandom, like fanfic, like cartoon rendering of like Harry Potter characters having sex with each other? Are you going to like have moderators who are on all the time sifting through horrifying content? Yeah, which either way, you know, like that's a big commitment. And if it's not profitable, it's hard to see why a big business would decide that they were going to undertake that. Yeah. So what do you guys think happens? Like, is this just it migrates somewhere else or we don't Tumblr disappears or who who wants to prognosticate? Who wants to be the Internet prognosticator? I don't know. I mean, I don't see. I mean, clearly, you know, adult imagery, adult communication will will go places. But, I, you know, as many people have pointed out, in which I feel a little bit of a fake or a poser, you know, restating what about those communities? It's not just yeah. that there those images are there. It's that there are communities. It's that you, you you know you have a conversation that you have back and forth that you feel supported that you feel reflected, or and you just generally get warm fuzzies for your you know for your selfie, <laughs> um, and that that community those connections will be lost. You know you again it's not these people's platform. You can't take those friendships and connections to another place, even if another place sprouts up, it has to, you know, those connections have to be remade and that basically always gets lost. So images will survive, sure, but those communities, I don't think, can reestablish themselves. Yeah, it's really poignant. I mean, to think about, I don't know, like how ephemeral, but also in other ways, creepily permanent our online lives are. It's just a really weird balance to get your head around how, like, on one hand, you can have, you know, the scariness of the fact that if, you know, someone, like, circulates revenge porn of you, that image can be out there forever. But then on the other hand, if you post something yourself that, you know, you find erotic and, you know, whatever, and share it with some group of followers, like, that community around your creative work could disappear. That creative work would be owned by a corporate behemoth like that. There's you know, it's just hard to um, hard to figure out how to be a human being in these spaces, really. Yeah, I feel like it's a permanent battle, like as the Internet becomes more colonized. Maybe we all just migrate to the dark web. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way it's going to work out. I don't even know what that means, really. I was only there like once or twice, but... We'll get some bitcoins. um, Anyway, listeners, bitcoins. We'll just get some bitcoins and pay sex workers on the dark web. I just, that's it. We know what we're talking about. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we know what we're talking about. Very well. (laughs) Anyway, so (laughs) listeners, if you are Tumblr users and longtime Tumblr users. If uh, the switch in the Tumblr code has affected you in any way, please let us know at thewaves at slate.com. We would love to hear it. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Okay, MLMs. I'm so excited to talk mm. about MLMs. Yeah. Uh, this idea actually came to us from a listener, Jessica Cochran. Thank you, Jessica. Multi-level marketing is the updated version of the Avon lady or the Tupperware lady. If you've ever gotten a personalized Facebook invitation from your cousin selling you wacky leggings or beauty products, it's probably an MLM company. The way it works is the company sells you things like starter kits, invites you to conferences, then you sell the products to your friends and you recruit friends to sell and get commission from whatever they sell. 
It is not a pyramid scheme legally, although it sounds like a pyramid scheme <laughs> sometimes, and they're being sued for being a pyramid scheme, and it's a little dicey. Uh, and a lot of the aspect we're interested in is that it's mostly women uh, who are attracted to these things. I don't have any statistical evidence of that, but it's like a longtime American sort of woman-dominated thing. And it's all outlined in a great podcast called The Dream, um, narrated by Jean Marie. Uh, so, June, I know that you, uh, because you just said it on your plane, mm -hmm. were listening to The Dream uh, and um, sort of like diving into MLMs. Will you just give us a little sense of like, what does an MLM look like that you heard on this podcast, which is fabulous, by it, the way. I loved it. It really is. Um, and if, like me, you had some reservations in the first two episodes, never mind. Put them aside. Carry on because it gets absolutely just so bloody good. It's amazing. Um, so an MLM, multi-level marketing uh, or direct selling, as, as the uh, these companies prefer to describe themselves, in theory, because I don't really believe that they are what they say, the multi-level uh, signifies what you just said, uh, Hannah, that in addition to pe people becoming sellers of products, at least in theory, there is a great incentive to uh, to engage other people who will be your downline. Um, is that the right term? Yeah, downline oh, and upline, like, like the so jargon. Right. Yeah, your downline the language. who will be like essentially your the people that you recruit, you then get a, a discount. You, you're, you get this incentive, uh, discounts, and also it helps you to gain status in the organization. Um, and in fact, uh, as the dream makes very clear, the vast majority of these companies really, because for one thing, the markets are so saturated at this point and because many of the products are utter bullshit, uh, that you could get better from a store, you know, pretty much any store and much cheaper. People don't actually sell the products for the most part. They are, you know, either just having buying inventory themselves and not because they are enthusiastic buyers and users of these products, but because they are pushed to buy inventory to sell on, which they, and if they can't sell it, they're just told to buy more. So essentially it is a closed market and they are, it is a pyramid scheme. Mm. They're, you know, they're being told to recruit people but and this is an exact bloody pyramid scheme. Although this, can I just say now, reading through this, I learned the technical distinction between when something is a pyramid scheme and when it isn't, because these are yeah, not legally yeah, pyramid yeah. schemes. Well, it's this idea of whether you can make money just from selling the product. Like, exactly. if it is possible to make money from just selling the product and not recruiting people, and if you can prove that as a company, um, which the company that's being sued, which is LuLaRoe, which is a very interesting mm -hmm. company with a very interesting history. It's founded by a Mormon woman sewing for her kids, like exactly what you'd expect, um, is uh, is uh, is the difference. So right. if the company but can can prove that, then they are not a pyramid scheme. And you have things on both sides. Like there have definitely been anecdotes from women who are like, this is perfect. This allows me to live my dream and do all the things I need to do. And other people who are suing the company because um, they've lured them in in a way which bankrupts them. Well, I mean, and we should say that, you know, the definitions of what is a pyramid scheme, yes, that's exactly right. That's what they say. But there's they none of these companies are able to prove that people actually do sell their products because they don't even make any attempt to keep records of that. Um, so I think, uh, you know, in the dream, the, the final episode is particularly damning on this, the final couple, but especially the last one that, you know, these, these, these kind of things, the way that these companies say, we're not a pyramid scheme because of X, these definitions are just pure, just words. They, they're meaningless. Uh, you know, they're things that they say, uh, they're rules that they make arbitrarily so they can say, we're not a pyramid scheme. These companies are all pyramid schemes. Well, and it relies a lot on optics too, where like as soon as, if one company is, that's obviously shady is taken down as a pyramid scheme, all the other companies are able to point to it and say like, well, we're not like them. <laughs> like obviously we're Amway. We're much more legitimate than Herbalife or, you know, some other more apparently dicey uh, endeavor. 
Um, okay. Well, before we go on about how their pyramid schemes are going, <laughs> can we just talk about the cultural aspect? Yes, which is fascinating. Yes, because that is what's really, really interesting. You get a real dose of this from the dream because she comes from a small town. There were some amazing statistics about how there are the same number of people in, you know, who are Lulu in the Lulu LaRoe. Lulu LaRoe, yeah. In, Lula Rose, sorry, um, in New York City, as there were in some teeny, teeny, tiny town. The point being that this is like, this is much more pop- popular in rural, and I think m- rural Midwest, though I'm not 100% sure about the Midwest part. So why is that? Like, what what does it do for women? Because I think that's real. Like, like the, the real question for me is is not so much like, is it a pyramid scheme? It's like, why does this idea persist? There is a version of this in every generation. There's a female version of this, which, you know, Avon and Tupperware lady don't have, they haven't survived as kind of, we don't say pyramid scheme when we talk about Avon or Tupperware. Um, But there's also the kind of get rich quick Ponzi scheme. Like that's a, that's a real deep American idea. So maybe Molly, like what, what do you think? What Just paint me a picture of like what a woman who is drawn to something like this why? Well, like, it's what funny. Is she, what What is it doing for her? In thinking about this um, this topic, which is fascinating, and I've also been listening to the dream, and it just really does suck you into learning about this world. Um, I realize that you know you hear uh, people sometimes talk about like how they just feel like they're inundated on their Facebook feeds with people they know who are now participating in you know Rodan and Fields or Lularoe, and they just feel like so many people you know from their hometowns or whatever are now hawking these products. And I realize that the only you know, coming from California and now living in New York and like being in kind of these coastal bubbles all my life, the only person I knew who was sort of involved in a multi-level marketing scenario was this woman who lived down the street from us growing up who sold Mary Kay. And she was married to a preacher. They were like sort of the only like that I knew of as the, at the time as like an eight-year-old or whatever, like Christian family, like very religious family in the neighborhood. And it it clicks into place when you start to hear these stories about how more kind of a more conventional understanding of gender roles and community and often religion really fit into and uh, cultivate the sort of mindset that, um, or, you know, those are the sort of the factors that are conducive to like interest in MLMs for a lot of women. Like it's um, it's a way that you can potentially make money while also being a housewife in some sense. You know, like you can be like using your social network through your kid's school or through a church or, you know, what have you in these very kind of conventionally female roles to try at least to make money while not threatening a husband's role as like a male breadwinner. Like it's a really non-threatening way to potentially, um, you know, pursue some kind of material gain. Although not just if you're a housewife, like yeah. to me, what it like it, in the way that it has a slightly new incarnation in every generation, it felt to me like this particular incarnation was was for an era in which that has largely fallen apart. This idea of like the sure. you know male breadwinner. I wrote a whole book about this. <laughs> so I will talk about it. <laughs> but no, really, do. it did yeah. feel to me like you could be you. What you were doing as a woman in this situation was preserving. First of all, just surviving, right? Like, like, like Jane Marie, who's the host of the podcast, talks about how in her town, like the jobs has, have disappeared, and she has this great riff in episode two about how if you're a woman, like the idea was don't get pregnant. You know, that's all anyone tells you, but like they don't really tell you what you're supposed to do when after you don't get pregnant, <laughs> like what the exact path is when you're not anymore pregnant. Like for men, it's like get the tools or go work here, but like for women, it's just like not that concrete, right? Yeah, but yeah. it's just don't get pregnant, and so. But there is this space in which, like, women are just trying to survive or they're single moms or marriages are falling apart. But nobody's quite ready to be like, I'm a feminist, pink T-shirt, pink hat. Like, it's not the vibe either. Yeah. You know, so so you're sort of carving out a little space in between there where you're preserving a lot of things, which I have to say, part of the reason I love this podcast, because, you know, this is like her cousins and aunts. Like, she's very intimate with this situation. Um, So she sees the love in a real, like, the beauty of this situation in a real way, not in like to be sure people get friendship and community like mm-hmm. you really feel as she's like hanging out with her aunt that there is something that this fills which is like 
genuine, like idealistic, um, you know, like like loneliness, friendship. There's like a lot that comes that the, that this kind of multi-level marketing really solidifies in people's lives. That's real. Um, but also just like survival, like you still get to take care of your kids. It's the way, you know, you ever run into women Uber drivers and they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, I get to pick up my kids. It's a little mm-hmm. bit like that, but not the kind of urban version of that. Yeah. Um, and so you get to be a woman, take care of your kids, but you still get to be a girl boss. So like you're tapping into a little bit of that, you know, I'm a new woman energy. Like if it works out, it's kind of perfect. It you would know? be. And that's why it is so I mean, the appeal is clear. Like, the, the, what are the alternatives? It's not like there are, you know, that many clear paths, as, as you say, and especially, you know, as she says in the second episode, as she really nicely sets up, what is the alternative to this? And that's why, in, in, in one way, it's so enraging and so sad-making that, you know, the, the appeal is clear. It's, it's a, you know, it's the American dream it's, you know, work hard. It's, uh, you know, this is an opportunity. But the problem is that it really isn't an opportunity. It's exploitation from these companies. There is basically no way to make money from these companies. And, what you know, in the dream, uh, she does find one woman who is happy, who actually is making money, who's working her ass off, has this super big downline, is, you know... Is, is just the, the very picture of success, the ultimate, This the, you can't do better than this woman. And she asks her how much she earns, and it's $42,000 a year, which I understand in, you know, like that would not be sufficient in New York City. But it's nothing to this, sneeze at. Yeah. No, exactly. Where this woman, you know, this woman says it's paying off her mortgage. But that is, you know, like that's the ultimate. That's as good as you can get. And what happens to more than 99% of these women is they lose money. They lose because they cannot sell the inventory that they are forced to buy and pressured to buy and that then they do not complain because they're either embarrassed or they feel like failures. I mean, it's absolutely tragic and it's, it you know, it's capitalism, man. Well, it's interesting because as you say, June, like on one hand, this is built into the structure. Like this is a messed up structure that is built to exploit the people who join the business. But at the same time, it's really easy to see the connections between the kinds of rhetoric that these companies and the people involved with them use and totally mainstream articulations of kind of American dream bootstrappy ethos. Like, you know, when you hear about all the women kind of being told, like, if you're messing this up, it's your fault. Like, you need to work harder. You need to, like, try harder to, like, sell more aggressively. If you're not being optimistic or, like, you're if you're, like, being down on yourself, like, it's your fault for not selling. That's like, you know, I'm being a little, like, extreme here, but like it's a hop, skip and a jump from lean in or something where, you know, if you if you are being discriminated against or something at work, it's your fault for not kind of pursuing your work ambitiously enough. It kind of denies whatever the external structure is. I mean, just to bring our all our topics like full circle. Please do. I was thinking of the of the Victoria's Secret sort of male gaze version of of you know like screw empowerment, and then this other side, which women are really vulnerable to, which we now see like the upper class version of this is is like health and wellness products, yep. which are insane. Like just like holy shit, do everybody <laughs> I know high school on up spend just a ridiculous amount of money on like re- organic this and sent that? It's like yoga. Insane. Teacher training, like just, yoga teacher training, whatever. It's just like exploded in the last few years in a way which is all about something else, which is all about like you do yourself. And so it's like we're just vulnerable to that, mm-hmm. um, to that, like that empowerment kind of message um, and its ability to steal all our money is pretty profound, yeah. too. And you what know? is and, and actually also dishonest, yes. also dishonest. Yes. Yes. So yes. I'm not sure, like. Yes. And it's really not clear what the alternative is. I mean, it's very clear to me that this is not a solution to these women's very real needs. But what what can they do? You know, like it's I understand completely why they repeatedly try these schemes, these these opportunities. But I don't know. I don't I don't have any way of, of anything else to recommend to women who are struggling and are, and really want to to try something, who really want to work hard to make something, who want to combine that with, you know, being with their kids. 
I totally understand the need and I have no idea what to tell them to do instead. Yeah. And it was interesting, I have to say, the way she, back to the dream, the podcast, how she organized it in a historical way. So you got mm-hmm. a sense of like what this was like in the age of, ooh, what is, was it? It was um, holiday magic. The age of, um, yeah, but it was also like, what's that age called? I'm just forgetting where it was like, it's empowerment, oh. but it wasn't called empowerment in the 70s. It was like, um, oh, fuck. What, oh, was yeah. the, what was it called? Um, oh, like the the like the sort it's like of self actualization, yeah. but like I'm getting the yeah, word yeah, yeah, wrong. Yeah, yeah. Like we don't use this word anymore, but it's like I totally get what you're saying. That like what it was in the 70s, you could just draw the line to lean in, you know, um, because it does have this moral undertone of like like the 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 if you listen to the dream, the woman who who takes up most of the first episode, there's a lot of like um, there's a lot of disapproval of people who aren't like peppy mm-hmm. enough you mm-hmm. know like yeah. get rid of this guy he's a downer when what the downer guy is saying is like wait you're stealing my money. <laughs> like, what is the downer guy is just like telling the truth about what's going on and he's like yeah he just wasn't positive enough you know and it's like the the la- it's like you know the secret or something like positivity but like social is a moral quality but social media i feel like puts all that stuff on steroids you know like just the way that people now i don't know one of the moments that i to keep talking about the dream because it is so wonderful. One of the moments that stands out in my memory is um, they play a video that this woman who was a seller for the company, the beauty company Limelight records where she talks about how she decided to go to the Limelight sales conference instead of going to her friend's wedding or being a bridesmaid in her friend's wedding. And like this was an important decision for her. And she thinks that like everyone else should like she's urging the listener, the viewer of her YouTube video to also like you know, go to the sales conference. It's what's going to make a difference for you. This is her advice. Like, and then they go back to her and they talk to her and realize that she actually was, you know, experiencing a crisis and her limelight business was failing. And yet she's recording this very peppy video where she positions herself as, you know, an apostle for the company. And actually what I was reminded of was, did did either of you see the movie Eighth Grade? I did not. I I recommend it. Um, But like the way the girl, like who's this sort of sad outcast at her school, she's very shy. She spends all her time recording these YouTube videos at home where she like gives advice on how to make friends, how to be popular, how to like go to a party. And like it's really poignant, of course, but it's also like, oh, my God, this sort of vernacular, like the lingua franca of like talking about like success and like how to empower yourself and like advising others on how to like follow in your footsteps, even though no one is watching her videos and they're kind of just her in a vacuum working the stuff out for herself. I was like, this is it's the same, you know, like everyone can kind of speak the, this language, go through the motions of how to perform capitalist success on YouTube or their Facebook or Instagram or whatever. But it still is just this facade is really heartbreaking. Although didn't wasn't there a little part of you that was like, well, this is this is literally self help, like self. You're yeah. just helping yourself, yeah, like absolutely. by forcing. Like, what would you be doing if you weren't? Because I watched some of the videos. I just like went around Facebook and watched some of the Lularoe videos, or the there was a couple yeah. other that others that I watched. Like, how do the women get game face on? You know, mm-hmm. and, and it and and I could just feel the desperation underneath. But I was like, okay, like better that you give yourself this public pep talk, um, you know, and people are just like yeah you're so great you're so pretty good job you go girl whatever and then you're just like sitting at home and collapsing oh i don't know God. that's you know i don't know there was just some emotional like even in eighth grade like you feel like it's a feedback loop like yeah. if you didn't do that it would be even more terrible it's like a diary you know? yeah even though <laughs> yeah even though it's terrible but mm-hmm. if you didn't do it it would be more terrible right um yeah Okay, well, if we have any listeners who have been sucked into MLMs, who are happy with their MLMs, whatever it is, please let us know. <laughs> I love being sucked Since into MLMs. Off, like, <laughs> Ponzi scheme, you know. I bet there are success stories out there. I'm telling you, I bet there are, like, women who have just, like, I'm, I was agoraphobic and now I'm out of the house and I've got all these friends. And although, actually, it doesn't work that way because you don't actually have to leave the house. So it's not quite you the can way just post on Facebook. Yeah. You can just post on Facebook, so it's maybe a little bit depressing, more depressing. But anyway, if you have any experience with them, please let us know. And, of course, listen to the podcast, The Dream, that we've been talking about, uh, made by Jane Marie. Let us know at thewaves at slate.com. Okay, recommendations. Molly. 
Be oh, brave. You go I first. Will. What I do you will. have for us this week? Okay, I have a um, possibly a downer recommendation. <laughs> uh, I would like to recommend the book Seasonal Associate by Heike Geisler. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, though I probably am not. She's a German author. Um, and the book, which is out from Semiotext, is um, which I'm also probably mispronouncing <laughs> now that I think of it, uh, is an account of the time that she spent working in an Amazon distribution center in Germany. Um, but it's it's not, you know, a journalistic expose. It's literary. It's written um, in the second person, actually. She's speaking sort of to her former self who is just signing on for this job that she takes because she is not able to support herself with her freelance writing and translation. And it's just a fascinating look at what work does to us and what, you know what it means to be fulfilled through your work, what it means to not be fulfilled through your work, what, you know, it means to operate as a human being in the context of a company like Amazon, you know, what it means to be a cog in a machine in that way, and just sort of the, the like, you know, down a recommendation, soul crushingness of being like, oh, God, I could be replaced by a robot at any moment. So she it does have a happy ending in that she's only a seasonal associate, as the title <laughs> would imply. She's there just through the Christmas season. But if you want something to read while you're, you know, say, shopping at an independent bookstore instead of Amazon as you do your Christmas shopping, I highly recommend seasonal associate. <laughs> Ooh, that sounds like my kind of thing. I love like a work n- novel about work. Yeah. Um and I love to feel like super righteous when I'm not <laughs> shopping on Amazon. <laughs> Both of those things are things that I love. So. Taylor May. <sighs> yeah. Um, okay, so I'm going to recommend Support the Girls, which is the Culture Gab Fest, and so many people have talked about Slate's Culture Gab Fest. Oh my God, did I just so enjoy everything about that show? It's streaming on Amazon Prime. It's about. Ooh, a Hooters, like like a small independent Hooters place. <laughs> Indie really Hooters. About Hooters ish. It's also about alienating labor, as you said, and what, what, what to do in the face of alienating labor, although it's a kind of old fashioned version of alienating labor. And it has one answer, which is female friendship, like the this sort of balance between female friendship and alienating labor. Um, and it also just like speaks to the themes we were just talking about with MLMs, like the central character played by Regina Hall, who's amazing, is like a person who is just relentlessly positive. Like she just has a, a kind of natural game face, um, which she puts on despite things being very hard. And you feel weird about that. Like, shouldn't she shouldn't she just Thelma and Louise it? <laughs> um, but she doesn't Thelma and Louise it. She just like she's able to talk herself into getting game face back on all the time and it's just beautiful and it also goes to very weird places like it does not unspool in at all in the way that you think it's going to it's not a linear movie in any way so i love it if you haven't seen it go see it june what do you got well it's been at least an hour since i mentioned that i was in australia and so uh (laughs) it's you know it's time so i just got back from australia and one of the things that i love to do when i'm in uh, an English-speaking country in which I do not live is just like just go over the bookcases that are like nonfiction books about the place, like either about politics or about current affairs. Uh, and um, I did that and found a, a writer that I had not heard of before, which um, was a little bit on me because the book that I'm about to recommend, which I absolutely loved was very positively reviewed in the New York Times and a couple of her books are available in the US but um, the writer is Chloe Hooper who is has written novels so she is a fiction writer but she also the book I'm about to recommend is non-fiction it's called Tall Man Death and Life on Palm Island and it's a, a journalistic account of uh, of an of a murder that happened or a killing, actually, I should not say a murder, uh, a killing that happened in custody. A white police officer killed an indigenous Australian uh, in a prison cell. Um, but maybe again, maybe I'm tipping my hand and putting <laughs> it that way. That was perhaps not how the authorities saw it. Um, but it's about the way that the case unspooled, about following uh, the trials, about following the 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 coroner's uh, inquest. Um, And the writing is amazing. It's just so beautifully written without being in any way showy. And 
Uh, it's one of those books where you, I don't think there, I can't remember one like, you know, description. And yet I know exactly what those places are like and what those people are like. And I just, I was just blown away by it. And I only bought that one book of hers when I was there because Australian books are very expensive <laughs> and I thought I would be able to find them here. But now I'm really realizing it's going to cost me much more because now I'm going to have to buy them from Australia. Uh, but she's an amazing writer, Chloe Hooper, and Tall Man was fantastic. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, Molly, I cannot tell you how delightful it was to have you on the phone, show. It was like perfect. It was like you have been on the show forever. It was really fun. Well, um, So thank you so much for joining us. Noreen's shoes are not easy to fill, but I am so <laughs> grateful for the chance to try. Um, it was really, really fun to talk with you today. Thank you. Um, well, that is our show today. Thanks to our producer, Danielle Hewitt, our production assistant, Alex Barish. You can email us at thewaves@slate.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And tell all your friends which is the best way to spread the word about the podcast. If you want more information about the show, go to our show page, slate.com slash the waves. And of course, we love hearing from you. So tweet at us at Molly H. Fisher, at June Thomas, or at Hannah Rosen. For June and Molly, I'm Hannah Rosen, and Waves will be back next week. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.